Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang dhammang sanghang namasami Come to the uh, next uh, Dhamma talk in this collection. So this is volume three of the Ajahn Sumato Anthology. Uh, this is uh, all from the book called The Way It Is. And these are talks that were given during the winter retreat of 1988. This is called The Shining Through of the Divine. Oh, by the way, it's Tan Nidaro. Um, yeah, uh, when I was talking yesterday about the that, that uh, simile of getting on the bus and dealing with um, mental conditions that um, don't seem to slow down or go away. So I, I remembered today that uh, one of um, Lumpucha's uh, comments that uh, I found extremely uh, helpful teaching over the years is that uh, 50 to 70% of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to. So that's like being on the bus, like, um, here we go, you know, uh, I'm on the bus, this, this is happening, uh, I should let go of this, I should be able to drop this, but uh, it's, it's got so much momentum behind it, it's just not droppable right now. So that's a, it might seem like a kind of um, half-hearted approach, or um, not trying, you know, you should try harder. <laughs> but uh, I found it is extremely wise advice. Well, yeah, and that um, the 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 mind that lets go is not the same. It doesn't work for the same company as the mind that holds on. You see what I mean? Yeah. So that the uh, they're different parts of our our, our being, our psychology, and so um, it's just a, a brief comment that Lumpur Chah made, but it uh, it is a really helpful tool in understanding how you know, certain habits, certain attitudes, certain moods just. They they get underway and they just keep going like you know this bus is not going to stop till it gets to to Edinburgh you know so, uh, so I thought I'd pass that on so anyway back to the shining through of the divine what is divinity we may have a vision of a human being as instinctive because we have an animal body with the same instinctive nature as an animal. Survival and procreation are just as strong instincts, instincts in us as they are in cats, dogs and rabbits. But there is also the divine. This is something that we rise up to or turn to because it's not instinctive. It won't be something we'll find unless we deliberately seek it. For reflection on divinity, we have the four Brahma-viharas the beautiful, selfless qualities that can manifest through the human form when there's no self. When you're not caught in instinctive behavior or emotional reactions based on ignorance, when there's dispassion and the whole process of self-view ceases, divinity becomes obvious. Then kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and serenity of mind are not qualities we have to get, but qualities that manifest through these human forms. 
In our lives as separate individual beings, we relate to things. We have to meet and contact and react or respond to objects all the time throughout our lives. On the physical level, we have to respond to each other's presence in some way by ignoring, embracing, paying respects or cursing. In relationships, there's, when there's no self, there is a divinity that manifests. Thus you can see that the human form is a form for the divine. On the other hand, we can think we live just for ourselves. It's my life and I can do what I want. I have the right to happiness and all that kind of selfishness. If we don't rise above the animal mentality, we can live very much by following our instincts or emotions. Or we can live in the world of ideas, of attachment to ideas of how things should be, which is very much a problem in the Western world. But as you penetrate that and see the suffering that comes from grasping anything at all, as that insight brings about letting go and non-attachment, there's a re response to the way things are, which can be divided into these four categories of the Brahma Viharas. So that uh, is a, you know, I feel a very good introduction, also a very skillful way of sort of uh, wrapping up these teachings um, that he's been giving on dependent origination and um, uh, pointing out how often we think of, say, metta or uh, karuna and so, uh, and so forth, or upeka and mudita as things that you practice, like their particular um, skills that you learn and you practice them. But the, the point that Lumpur makes here and throughout the, the Dhamma talk is that it's not, uh, it's a kind of a two way street. You can practice them to bring your attitudes and your conduct and your speech into alignment with that which is uh, beautiful and holy, divine, Brahma. But also, when there is, if you see what I mean by a two way street, it's like you can adopt the practice to take you to, to help to cultivate the attitude. But also, if the attitude of not self is there, if there's a, 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 an attitude of non identification, non attachment, then these emotional qualities are what naturally arise. And so that. As Lumpur says, uh, and kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and serenity of mind are not qualities we have to get, but qualities that manifest through these human forms. And this was uh, quite a common theme for, for Lumpur in, the, in this era. He would often use the uh, expression, we have the body of an animal but the mind of a god, as a way of representing the the strange mixture that we we uh, experience in the human condition, and um, and that's a a, a very um, kind of a evocative or and I think quite accurate way of of describing what we experience. We have these animal bodies that need to breathe and eat, procreate, and excrete, and so on, uh, protect their territory and and compete for places in the pecking order with with uh, other creatures, but we also have these divine qualities, you know, the, the capacity to be unselfish, to be, to be caring for the well-being of uh, other creatures, and not just our own species, but um, uh, beings of completely different species, that we have these kind of uh, divine qualities as well. 
also um, speaking, um, the, he's then talking somewhat about the uh, the six realms, the the animal realm. If we don't rise above the animal mentality, we can live very much following our instincts and emotions. So that's the what they call the Tirachana Loka, the the animal realm, is a, a realm of. Uh, of instincts and reaction, uh, the kind of compulsive behavior of uh, aggressing against others or, or sort of pursuing the, what you want and uh, is uh, not very reflective um, and uh, uh, painful and uh, a realm of, of struggle and conflict in, in many degrees. But then also the, the Deva realm, um, we might think, well, the Deva realm is very uh, sort of beautiful and divine, but also his comment here about uh, the world of ideas, that's also really the Deva realm, people who live in the, the sort of dwelling in abstractions, sort of academic, uh, people living in academic realms or just focused on, on ideas and principles and, and opinions. And so that um, they can be very lofty, very, very refined, very high-minded, um, but also not particularly um, connected to uh, other other beings in any real substantial and, and helpful way. And so, just living in a deva realm is not. Uh, it might be refined. It might have you, know, you spend your 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 days trying to work out the solution to the Riemann hypothesis, or. Um, you know, or uh, you know, developing your, your insight into the uh, expansion of the universe and uh, such like kind of lofty scientific uh, pursuits or the nature of language in, in uh, sort of medieval uh, uh, manuscripts and such like. But um, that, so they can be quite refined and quite, um, say, wholesome in some respects, but it's not very liberating. And so that's why, uh, again, a few days ago I was saying how uh, it's notable that Buddhas are always born in the human realm. They, the last life of a Buddha is always in the, in the Manusa Loka, the human realm, because that mixture of the, the painfulness of the animal body and the um, the limitations of the animal body, but also the capacity for these uh, wholesome and sublime qualities, the capacity for abstract thought, and also the, um, the capacity to reflect upon uh, experience and the nature of dukkha and the ending of dukkha, that uh, Buddhas are always born in this uh, this most fertile, or Bodhisattvas are, all, are born in their last life in this most fertile realm of the, the human condition because of that mixture of the, the, uh, the instinctual and the, the sublime. Metta, Karuna, Mudita and Upeka provide a reflection. They form a sequence of how to relate to the human realm, to the animal kingdom and to nature. Metta is very much how we should relate to ourselves, too. It's how to relate to ourselves with kindness and acceptance, rather than with aversion and judgment. Metta implies accepting something that may not be very nice, such as physical pain, or things that aren't very nice about our body or our character. Maybe you have a lot of fears, or bad temper, or something similar. If you have metta, that means you can accept those things for what they are. You're not judging them or condemning them from an ignorant, self-conscious position. You're aware of them as painful, unpleasant or ugly. But metta practice is the ability to accept patiently the flaws, pain, irritations and frustrations within our minds and bodies and the unpleasant and annoying things that impinge on them from outside. 
This is because with metta, such things are no, no longer seen as personal. There's no me and you, no you've done this to me or I've done this to you. Metta is having perspective and not creating a problem, even about unfairnesses, injustices, inadequacies and so forth in ourselves, others or society. This doesn't mean that we don't notice or can't see them, but it means that we don't make problems about them. We don't carry them around in our minds with bitterness, resentment, anger and destructive tendencies. With metta, there's always the ability to forgive and to start anew, to recognize the way things are and not expect everything to fit our ideals regarding how things should be. This doesn't mean that we fatalistically resign ourselves to mediocrity, tyranny or stupidity, but, uh, but that we aren't caught in the pattern of ignorance conditioning mind formations. Thus, we can bear with the vicissitudes of life with kindness and acceptance. So I think that's uh, a very good description of metta, as uh, I spoke of the other day, how it's, a, uh, it's not like, uh, trying to make ourselves like everything, but cultivating that uh, open-hearted, radical acceptance that you know, this is the way things are. And then, as Lumpur puts it, it doesn't mean that we're fa we fatalistically resign ourselves to mediocrity, tyranny or stupidity, because often when we hear uh, an encouragement like, well, this is the way it is, just be open to the way things are, just accept, uh, what he would say over and over again, is he doesn't use the words here in this talk, but uh, he, uh, he would often say, acceptance doesn't mean approval. Just because you accept something doesn't mean to say that you like it or you think it's good or it couldn't be done in a different way or in a better way. Um, but it just means here it is, in this moment, it's exactly like this. So, uh, as he said, it doesn't mean being fatalistic or resigning ourselves to mediocrity, tyranny or stupidity. Like if you're, if you're on the, the washing up duty and you, you, are, you, know, you have a, a pot sitting there on the, on the side of the sink and you say, well, this is the way it is. <laughs> you leave it there unwashed. It's like, right, but your, your job to wash the pots is also part of the way it is. So um, get the scrubber and get the hot water on and, and start scrubbing. So it can easily be misunderstood as a sort of passive um, uh, or foolish, uh, fatalistic kind of attitude, but uh, it's not that. It, as he says, it's, um, <clears throat> it's uh, just not being caught in the pattern of ignorance conditioning mind formations so that there's a, 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 a kind of a, an attunement and open-heartedness to the way things are. But with that, there's a recognition of what is wholesome, what's unwholesome, what's doable, what's not doable. And that wisdom faculty is is part of the picture. And so then that, in, that wisdom faculty is then what informs the choices that are made on the basis of that acceptance, that, that metta. And uh, Lumpur also briefly mentions um, with metta, there's always the ability to forgive and start anew. So that, um, I feel that's a very important connection, that part of that acceptance is, is forgiveness. And that, that kind of creating space for yourself, having made um, mistakes and done and said foolish things or being act, acted in you know, hurtful or, 
or destructive ways. And similarly for other people, forgiveness, the word give in forgiveness is not an accident, it's, it's a giving, you're, you're giving space, you're giving a, a, a kind of a, an opportunity for things to, to be refreshed. And it, it's, a, it's a giving, what they call abhayadana, the giving of fearlessness. You're, you're not dwelling in, in aversion or criticism or blaming yourself or other people. Uh, you're not taking sort of taking refuge in kind of hatred, self-hatred, or hatred of others, but there's a there's a giving, um, and it's a giving of fearlessness because if you really hold no grudge, if there's no patika is the Pali word, if there's no grudge, uh, no real negativity there. People don't need to be afraid of you. Other beings, they don't need to run away from you. Like you know, the, we we're harmless here. We live by the precepts, so that you know the when you, you, I walk out of my kuti or walk down the, the path, yeah, frequently the, the, the pigeons that are picking their way in the, in the grass or the blackbirds, they kind of look up and they might sort of move a few steps away or might, might take off and fly away, but they're, they're pretty casual. They, they know that we're not going to attack them and eat them, but they know that these two-legged beings are pretty safe and that, um, that uh, they, uh, that's giving fearlessness they don't need to be afraid of us so that is also to the other humans that we live with if you're not carrying around judgments and uh, negative judgments or uh, grudges uh, about each other then people don't need to to uh, be afraid of you <laughs> they don't need to to uh, be um, they anxious about what you're going to say to them or, or if you're going to give them a bad time or you're going to uh, make life uh, difficult for them so that that that's a kind of generosity, and uh, of the different kinds of giving, um, then the Buddha pointed to abhayadana as being something that is superior to material giving. Amisadana is giving of material gifts. Abhayadana is the giving of fearlessness. And he also pointed out the taking the five precepts. And he said he also said these are called the five great gifts, mahadana. Um, because of you know, one who lives by the five precepts is giving immeasurable freedom from anxiety, freedom from distress, freedom from fear to, uh, to other beings and also to yourself. So any questions on comments, thoughts? Anagarika Philippe, yes. <coughs> Thank you, Adrian. It's actually more a question about the last few readings about um, perception. I I I read then in the dependent origination we could say instead of perception, memories. Well, someone translated memories, and so I thought about it, and I had. Um, an experience. I I went for the meal and I had a strong desire for food. And actually, when I was eating, I could see that in a way I had no perception because as soon as the food was in my mouth and then the pleasure was there, it was already a memory. I was already running after something which was vanished. I, it's like I could never stop on the nice perception of it it was <laughs> no it was gone so I, I, I could continue like that and then after I eat too much and duka is really strong 
So it was really funny to see. Yeah, then I couldn't, I couldn't see the perception. I couldn't feel it. It was really just memory. And yeah. And then my mind was just running after it and <laughs> couldn't catch it, you know. So I was wondering if you could just comment on this. Thank yeah, I think you. you've been ruined. <laughs> so yeah, your career as a chef is it's definitely over. So, um, I'm, I'm joking. But the, the um, yeah, it's it's very good to see things in that kind of a way. That it's kind of a conjuring trick. You know, you know, a conjuring trick like a magician performs a trick so that it, it because of the way the trick is done. It, it seems as though something is is happening, but when you when you break it down, it's like oh no, that, it was just an illusion. It, that wasn't what was happening at all. It was just a, it was just an appearance. And so when you when we look at, um, at uh, the relationship between contact, feeling, perception, thinking, memory, and so on, then you, if it's really broken down, then the, the, the the conclusion that the mind comes to is, well, there's nothing really there. It's <laughs> why do I get so excited about this, or why is this so upsetting, or why do I make such a big deal out of this? Wow! And so it's like seeing how the the trick is done. Like the, you you see how the the magician did the trick, and then once you've seen it, you, you you kind of can be tricked again, but you can't be tricked in quite to quite the same extent. So that uh, it's a um, it kind of ruins us for the for worldly living, which is good. It's a, um, uh, because we might like to dwell in those kind of illusions or, or get uh, enjoy enjoy being carried away sometimes. <coughs> but um, it's very it's very liberating because it's like you you know the mind can't be fooled by those those appearances so easily, and that um, the. Uh, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean to say that, that there won't be other experiences that are more pleasurable or that uh, have a different quality later on. But I would say that just seeing things like that is is extremely helpful. And sometimes it was particularly when the the mind is chasing after some kind of pleasant experience, and you think, oh, "I've got to have more. This is really great. I love this. This is this is fantastic." Uh, when you really bring attention to the thing that you're calling you know, lovely and desirable and you want more of it, you, then if bringing close attention to that, you can recognize this is actually quite uncomfortable. <laughs> this is not a particularly pleasant state at all. You know, I, uh, that uh, I'm kind of tense and, um, and uh, yeah, I, can't, I can't breathe very easily and yeah, my, my heart rate is, is really fired up and this is quite uncomfortable, <laughs> but uh, we uh, we don't notice that. So that's one, one uh, part of it. And then on the other end of the scale, kind of equally interesting but with a very different tone, is that things that are really unpleasant, that we really don't want to happen, or we've got to get away from when we feel, I can't stand that, that's really awful. Uh, in exactly the same way, if you bring attention to to that process of what you you hate or you you tell yourself we can't stand or you you really don't want to be with, then you you find oh my goodness this is not that bad at all why do I spend so much time and effort trying to get away from this or 
avoiding this. Yeah, you know, uh, it's such hard work to try and stop feeling this, but actually, it's not that bad at all, huh? So that kind of close attention and and reflection, um, like that, so a combination of concentration and mindfulness and wise reflection. They they have a very balancing effect. They help the mind to to not be sort of so intoxicated by both painful experiences and, and pleasant experiences, what we call painful and what we call pleasant, so that the, there's much more of, a, of an evenness of attitude in respect to the, that whole perceptual process. Okay, so on to karuna. Then there's karuna, compassion. When we see the suffering of others and the injustices and unfairness that exist, we respond with compassion, but not like a wealthy person feeling sorry for the poor. That's not it. It's not looking down on the poor, not patronizing or feeling sorry for people, but understanding the predicament of our human condition and all that goes with it. It's from understanding the nature of suffering, how it arises and ceases, that you can have true karuna, for other beings. The British have a lot of karuna for animals. Britain is quite an impressive country. When you think how much wildlife there is in this densely populated area of southern England, that's a good quality, karuna. Britain is a kind country where people generally have developed compassion, concern for the unfortunate and the underprivileged. So, I think people really appreciate that. Um, when uh, uh, I was visiting um, a Bayagiri monastery uh, a couple of years ago in California, and I mentioned how we had to have this bat survey before we could take down Lotus House, and that if there was a single bat, there was, a, there was a one, one bat dropping <laughs> there in Lotus House, which indicated there might be a bat roosting there. So we had to delay the, the whole demolition of the building so that, that the possibility that one bat would not be disturbed. And that they had a whole kind of um, uh, department in the local council that made sure that the bats were protected. And when I mentioned that uh, to the, the people there in the States, they said, Are you serious? I mean, it's, it's your building, it's on your property, you can't just knock it down. It's oh, no, 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 no. The, the, you know, there's strict regulations about looking after the wild creatures. And uh, if you have newts, uh, you have to if, we, if you have newts living on the property, then you have to make sure that the newt habitat is not disturbed. And um, so, I feel that's a, that's a very beautiful uh, uh, quality, a great strength of this country that people really care for for the um, uh, living beings uh, of, of all kinds. Uh, often, that uh, um, the care for dogs and cats, in particular. There's more concern for their welfare than there are for the other humans. But, uh, I remember years ago there was a um, uh, a kind of banner headline of one of the tabloid papers of uh, a, a London uh, gangster who'd been living in uh, uh, in sort of exile in Spain. He'd been assassinated by some um, some rival, and. Um, you know, the, the fact that he'd been bumped off and and um, uh, and sort of shot uh, was you know was that was kind of startling and a cause for concern. But they shot his dog, 
And that was what made the headlines of the paper, was that they shot the dog, and there was this, this kind of tragic picture of the dog by the swimming pool. And there was this kind of outrage. They, they, they shot the bloke as well, but there was the, the fact that the, the, uh, the assassin would kill the dog too. It was just so, so appalling, so awful, so dreadful. I thought only in, not, maybe not only in Britain, but um, it's very much a character where the, the, the how heartless, how awful to shoot the dog, you know, shooting the gangster, okay, you know, sort of par for the course in the kind of human competitive world, but shooting the dog, how could they? You know, a, but uh, again, I feel that's a very noble and beautiful quality that we have in, in this country that we really care for for the the welfare of other other beings and being cruel to cruel to to animals as well as being cruel to people is is really um something that's that uh, really hurtful people really look down on that and that's something that the, you're from an early age in this country that you're you're very strongly trained to ne never be cruel to animals when we moved to chithurst there were people who didn't want us there but most of the local people tried to be fair. In other words, they had a certain measure of compassion for us. They would not have harmed us or tried to get rid of us, even though they, they, they may have preferred a nice Christian monastery or a nice proper upper-class family to buy Chithurst House, a family who would keep horses and play polo. That would have been more in line with the general mood of West Sussex because people like what they're used to. But because Metakaruna were already developed, only a few people were directly hostile or wanted to take action against us. So one can regard, regard this as Metakaruna. Also, uh, um, um, uh, there's another word for compassion, uh, Anukampa. Uh, when when, when the, the request for the Dhamma talk is made, Anukampi Mang Pajang. So Anukampati, is another word for um, for compassion, and it literally means it's more like uh, the word empathy. If people know that word, it's to, it literally means to resonate with. And sometimes you get the translation trembling for the welfare of all beings. So it's a, a kind of empathizing, and so that uh, uh, I think the the English word compassion it literally means to suffer with. Com is with, passio is from the Latin to, to suffer. And so uh, I think anukampati is, is a bit more close to the actual uh, correct translation of, uh, of the word or, or, or karuna. Similarly, it's not really compassion because in Buddhist psychology, to have compassion for the suffering of others doesn't mean that you're suffering with them. It's a great brightness, like I was saying about upeka. Karuna or Anukampa is it's a brightness of heart. It's not a it's not a state of suffering. So that if you're suffering on account of the suffering of others, that's not tr true karuna or anukampa. There, there's an empathy, there's an appreciation of the, the pain that other beings have, but you're not suffering on, on account of the suffering of others. So I feel that's uh, an important quality. Uh, and it's in a way, the, the the very word we have in English, compassion, it it generally points us towards uh, if others are suffering, you know, you should be suffering too. But um, in in terms of Buddhist psychology, I feel it's it's helpful to to recognise that yeah, you can totally care uh, and work hard to relieve the suffering of others, but you're not suffering because they're suffering. 
you want to, to help, but you're, you're not creating anguish or distress in your own heart on account of the, the suffering of others. Does that make sense? Any thoughts, questions? Gaspar? So, uh, just maybe uh, a few reflections on the topic of compassion, um, inspired by what, what you were mentioning, um, sort of being compassionate towards animals, etc. It seems that we as humans tend, um, tend to be compassionate towards those to whom we don't attribute any particular sense of agency or volition in the sense that um, we are more likely to to sort of be or not be compassionate to to fellow humans when when we assume that they are the masters of their uh, own actions as opposed to uh, animals which kind of we we tend to regard as sort of uh, automatons or, or biological <laughs> machines um, that's that's one thing I want to sort of comment, and I'm curious about your reflections on this. And then there's another one where also on the topic of animal cruelty, which I've observed, um, by means of being sort of compassionate towards animals, people can become uncompassionate to, to other people. It's in a sense that they, they cling to this idea of compassion and, and, and protection mm -hmm. towards animals, but then... <laughs> they can sort of this can manifest in being uh, harsh and and quite uh, nasty to to fellow humans. So yes, thank you. Um, yeah, there's interesting points. Um, yeah, for myself, uh, I, I don't think it. Uh, I don't find that it's just to do with agency. Um, yeah, I find I can I can be very compassionate towards political leaders. Who are not very lovable, but um, that they're really you know, stuck in a particular point of view or destructive behaviors and creates all kinds of chaos and difficulty around them. And there is that, that compassionate feeling like, you know, poor guy, <laughs> that, uh, uh, what can be done to, to help this person not create such a, a mess around themselves all, you know, so often? So that uh, yeah, I, I do take your point. I think it's it's in the uh, in the ordinary run of things that's very common that it's a, if things are not so um, able to control their own environment and much more the the subject to circumstances. But um, uh, I do feel that it's even though that people can be critical of like you know members of their own family or. Uh, the people in their institutions that they're part of the workplace or the monastery or the or the in the government um, that uh, people can react with with criticism and blaming and, and aversion but in cultivating the brahma viharas that um, that quality of compassion is uh, i think is really important because it, uh, a, a particular sense of empathizing because if if you're talking with someone or if you're connected with someone and that they they uh appreciate that you that you're not just attacking them 
you're not just blaming them or criticizing them, but you, there's a genuine empathy there. You really care for them. And what you find is you can you can say things or make statements or, or um, put things forth forward that might be exactly what they don't want to hear, but because of the the quality of empathy and that they know this person that he's not just attacking me, it's not just because he hates me uh, as a genuine caring, and so that then you can sometimes communicate a, a message in a much much better way than than um, uh, if there isn't that quality of empathy. If it's just, you know, like a, a well-reasoned argument, what you mean is you're bad, you're wrong, and you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't be that way. But if, there, if there's a genuine empathy and you realize, well, this poor person, you know, they've, they've really dug themselves into a corner um, uh, and uh, they, uh, they've made a, a really painful situation for themselves, and so then you, you can. They've got plenty of agency. They've made plenty of you know, fairly independent choices, but then that quality of compassion can be there um, to uh, to be motivated to, to help them to to act in different ways or to to help them get out of that corner they've painted themselves into. <laughs> And then the the second point you made was about yeah, and I mean that's it's a, a very often observed quality. Sometimes the the people who are most ardent in terms of caring for the animal world or, or of sort of causes of of peacefulness and and uh, well being can be the most kind of reactive, angry, and destructive. To be honest, kind of really um, hurtful in their attitudes. I mean, it's it's. It's not just that ironic. I think it's, it's tragic that there's kind of a, it's a sort of um, I would say like a wrong grasping of high-mindedness. That yes, it's a noble principle uh, to be caring for the welfare of animals or to be looking after this particular aspect of the environment or this particular social injustice, um, but because of the mind grasping it in such a way, then you can you can find yourself unconsciously developing incredible hatred just bitter real real harshness real bitterness and so that um even though it's based on a nobility and a wholesome uh, skillful attitudes the effect well at least one of the effects is even while they're they're trying to to um bring into being that the, those sort of noble qualities and do do helpful skillful work Along with that, they're bringing in this kind of destructiveness and harshness and divisiveness, and so it's a it's a tragic thing. And living the life that I do and being the position that I have, I'm meeting people in that kind of situation uh, fairly regularly. And um, but it, it's uh, it's difficult to to uh, help people again to, to to know how to help people out of that or just making a, a comment or offering a offering a, a reflection at the right moment <laughs> you have to choose your words and your timing really well but often it's it's very diff it's very challenging to do that because the people um often they've got a very very well worked out philosophy of why that's good and why that's right and why they have that particular way of approaching those issues and um why it's really important and um 
and so that they've, they've got it kind of mapped out in their own mind and so it's not a matter of coming up with a a good argument to counter that but rather some some way of communicating do you realize what you're doing to yourself do you do you realize how, you know the way that you're speaking and the the amount of bitterness and divisiveness there is in the way you're speaking can you hear that and uh, and so sometimes if you again if you're coming from a genuine place of empathy and caring then that sometimes can get through it might be rejected sort of at the surface level but then and, late, and only later on the person realizes actually he might be right <laughs> you know like yeah i do really go on a bit don't i or like wow well, yeah I, I do use that kind of language yeah so why yeah that, that that's a, that's a fair point so sometimes in the actual exchange that you're having you can have the door shut in your face but if you're really coming from a place of of sincerity and communion there's a real there's a real communication a communion has been happening then some way or other it gets through to the other person and it, you know, it might take a while to surface but uh, my experience is that generally it will somehow or other so on to mudita which is a, a long section Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that one shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, still doing... <laughs> it's been here for days, they don't seem to decay at all. They're, they're real. <laughs> they're amazing. These beautiful flowers continuing to be a very good um, uh, object to refer to. You see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to not being so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. Flowers are a lot prettier than we are. We admit they're prettier. We expect them to be. We don't envy them their beauty. But we might really hate somebody else for being beautiful because then it's a threat. Somebody else's beauty makes me look not so beautiful. This is to be observed, not to try to force a kind of false happiness onto the situation, but to let these things cease in your mind. To be clearly aware of this particular problem is to stay with it and not make a problem about it from the self-view. Recognize it as anicca, dukkha, anatta. Let it cease. Let go of it. Then in that letting go, we find a rejoicing in the talents, the goodness, and the beauty of other beings. When you look at flowers, you experience a joyful feeling, and that's mudita. You're rejoicing in or glad at the beauty of something. Maybe you've never reflected like that. We see beautiful things in nature, and because they're no threat to us or anything else, we can rejoice in the sunset or the beauty of trees and mountains and rivers. So that's mudita, a rejoicing in beauty, goodness and truth. 
and we rejoice in the goodness of others. When somebody does something good or you hear about some noble action, heroic effort or self-sacrifice, a sense of mudita arises. That's joy, sympathetic joy. But we tend to fall short of this when it becomes a matter of you and me. We can be very jealous of somebody's health and beauty if we are caught in self-view. We might feel joy at the flowers in the garden, but then go to a neighbour's house where the flowers are more beautiful than ours. We might feel envy because from a self-position, it's her flowers look better than mine, and she's more beautiful than I am, or he's better looking than I am, he's more intelligent, or he has a better personality. So we suffer from envy and jealousy. It's a very common problem. In fact, many human beings are really stuck in envy and jealousy. If, if one were to go to a rich person's house with beautiful grounds, a swimming pool, beautiful oriental carpets and lovely furnishings, a selfless person might rejoice at being in a beautiful place. Or one might think, hmm, wealthy people probably got rich from cheating the poor and ripping off the underprivileged, grumble, grumble, grumble. I remember once going into a beautiful church in London with somebody. I said, oh, what a lovely church. He said, yeah, it was probably at the expense of all those colonies the British exploited. But I wasn't commenting on history, but experiencing the gladness of being in a beautiful place. And yet we can think that maybe that church was built out of the slave trade or the opium trade. Perhaps slave traders and drug traffickers centuries ago felt guilty, so they built a magnificent church in London. But that doesn't mean that it's not beautiful. We're not judging it on the moral plane, but reflecting on the joy, on the experience of beauty, goodness and truth. These are what bring joy into our lives. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean at heart. They live in an ugly, in an ugly realm. There's no rejoicing in beauty, goodness and truth. To rejoice in these things doesn't mean that we get carried away with them. The experience of joy no longer occurs if we indulge in beauty and try to grasp it, or if we hold on to the experience of joy to try to have it all the time. But mudita is certainly a part of our human experience. Mudita is our ability to be joyful with the beauty and the loveliness of life's experiences. It's a sense of joy and appreciation and gratitude for the beauties and the lovely things of life, the lovely things in other people. So when there's no self, then there's joy. We find joy in the goodness, the beauty of the people around us, or in society or in natural conditions. Once you have insight, you find you enjoy, delight in the beauty and goodness of things. Truth, beauty and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. That is mudita. But if you see beauty as something to grasp, it arouses desire. You see beautiful human beings, a beautiful woman or man, and you think, I want. That's desire. It's not rejoicing in the beauty of someone. It's the desire to possess, control, and get something for yourself out of it. At the level of instinct, that's the way it is. It's natural enough. If we didn't find each other attractive, no one would want to perpetuate the species. If sexual activities were painful and miserable, nobody would want to do them. And if we found each other totally repulsive and ugly, we wouldn't want to get close to each other, not to mention anything as intimate as sex. Desire is a natural way on that level of the sensory realm. There's nothing wrong with it, but there is the possibility for a human being to transcend it. If desire was all we were and all we could do, we should always follow it, 
But because we can transcend it, we have this connection to the divine. We can rise above the coarse, instinctive nature of our bodies and the animal realm. And that's what I'm pointing to. I'm not condemning the animal realm. Animals can bring us a lot of joy. Down at Chidhurst recently, I spent the day with Doris, our cat. I've always felt she brought me a lot of joy. She's a very pleasant animal. If I got attached to her, however, I'd say, I've got to have Doris. I've got to bring Doris here to Amravati. I can't live without her. Did I drag her up here and she'd have to fight with the cats who live here? And it would all be just for me, just so I could get what I wanted. That wouldn't be a joyful experience anymore. It would cause a lot of problems. We can reflect on how things affect us. Always to want mudita, the beautiful flowers, the waterfalls and the beautiful birds singing means that you can't rejoice in them anymore because you're trying to hold on. You're trapped in all kinds of views and opinions about them so that even if you're in the midst of them, you're not really enjoying them, rejoicing in them anymore because you've been separated from them for, because you've been separated from them through your desire for them. That's a very interesting point um, that Lumpur makes there. Um, you're trapped in all kinds of views and opinions about them, so that even if you're in the midst of them, you're not really enjoying them. Kind of like what Philippe was saying about the food. <laughs> you're not really enjoying them, uh, rejoicing in them anymore, because you've been separated from them through your desire for them. I mean, not exactly what Philippe was saying, it was, but um, that, uh, that brings to mind a, a well-known little poem by... William Blake, who was a, an English poet of the um, uh, 18th century, I think, um, 19th century. And uh, he, um, he uh, it was a, a little verse about joy, and he says, um, He who binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. He that kisseth a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise so the, the the english is a little bit antiquated but it means if you bind yourself to a joy like yes that's mine i want to keep this this is great you know the, then you uh, <clears throat> it says doth the winged life so the life which is sort of taken as a sort of a flying bird uh, it just it destroys things it crushes them so that trying to to keep and hold and possess something joyful that, that is a, a destructive attitude. But uh, <clears throat> he that kisses, kisseth a joy as it flies, to, to kiss the joy as it flies, just to appreciate it, but not to try and hold it or own it or keep it or, or, or act out of, of tanha in relationship to it, then, as he says, uh, you live in eternity's sunrise. So it's a very poetic way of speaking. But it... it um, it captures a very uh, significant point. And Lumpur would uh, quote that same poem from time, from time to time as well. So it's uh, William Blake on joy. And uh, that uh, yeah, the, 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 the art or the, the skill is then to be um, uh, ready to, to know and to delight in the beauty of the flowers or the the qualities of other people around you and just to not add anything to it, to not try and own or to keep or to, to make a whole thing about it, but just to, 
to uh, to appreciate, as he says, to kiss the joy as it flies, to to appreciate that, and then to to uh, let go of any kind of owning or possessing or or trying to to make to make much of. Any thoughts, questions? Venerable Chitta somewhere. Yeah, it's more just a, a quick uh, reflection. Um, one of the, the uh, I think it's a, a poem in the in the verses of the elders, maybe by Maha Kasapa, mm -hmm. about these um, these rocky crags delight me. Do you know Do you know that one? It's um, it's, it's talking about like peacocks and elephants and uh, yeah, it's uh, I think it's yeah, Maha Kasapa rejoicing in the. The rocks and the, the trees and the mountains. Yeah, I, I always find that very um, pleasant to find this in sort of Theravadan sort of uh, literature because there, there isn't ever so much of that kind of appreciating uh, natural beauty. Mm -hmm. Whereas, um, yeah, so that, that, was, that was all really just uh, very quick. <laughs> yeah, there, there's not a lot of that in the, in the Pali Canon. But also, you know, you have a... The uh, the Buddha is saying that the the Tathagata delights in in wild places in the in the forest and in living in in the you know the um, away from the hustle and bustle of the of the city and you know, delights in living in the in the forest and also in the the Mahagosinga Sutta where they there's this beautiful moonlit night in the forest, and all the trees are flowering, and there's this fragrance of the of the blossoms uh, filling the night, and that uh, and uh, over and over again, you, you you get the sense that that's really appreciated, and, and it's used as a symbol of um, what kind of a of a monastic would illuminate the, the the forest on a beautiful night like this. So that sense of wow, what a lovely night this! It's the um, the, the moonlight is filling the the forest, and the flowers are all blooming, and the air is filled with this wonderful fragrance. It's kind of a like a divine presence, and so that you do get little flashes of that here and there. <laughs> okay, just to read a little bit more. I'll finish off uh, Mudita. In our life as summoners. Contemplating nature, con contemplating the Dhamma, we don't have to think that, that all beauty is just there to corrupt us and give us another rebirth. That's another self-view. But be aware of how beauty affects you. When you see a beautiful woman or a handsome man, how does that affect your mind? There may be an initial attraction, and then you can easily start to feel threatened and reject the person because we have a life of celibacy. Or you might give a second glance and dally with the sexual thoughts that might arise from that eye contact. But the more that you are mindful, the less you tend to follow things as desire, the less you tend to create or add to the feelings with desire and attachment. When you're mindful, you don't do that. Enlightenment doesn't mean a kind of bland indifference. Sometimes enlightenment is made to sound as if it means becoming emotionless zombies, people who don't feel anything anymore. Well, as long as there's self, what we, what we call joy tends to be tinged with selfishness. It becomes stained with ourselves. 
we become jealous if we have something beautiful and somebody else has something more beautiful. Because selfishness always turns beauty into possessiveness. If the beauties of life, the joy of truth and beauty and goodness are coming from self, they're always corrupted with jealousy, envy and begrudging people. So if there's selfishness, even being the most beautiful of all is not really a joyful experience. Because you're always worried that someone else might claim that crown. If you adopt a self-view, there's always a, that possibility. But when there's no self, beauty doesn't belong to anyone. It's not mine or yours. We realize there's no possibility of possessing it anyway. So there's no desire to possess. So there can be the joy of the experience of beauty without it being corrupted by selfishness. So that's, I think, a very beautiful exposition on, on mudita, particularly rejoicing in the gifts and good qualities of other people. And um, so that, because uh, we, we, as human beings, we can be quite competitive and be comparing ourselves with others very easily. Um, and uh, it, you know, it's, it's not just confined to any, <laughs> any one nationality or any, any particular gender or uh, any particular sort of social uh, background or education this is how we are as human beings we're sort of a, a tribal species we we, we compare and compete with, with each other so i feel it's definitely in the brahma vihara realm it's sort of the brahma realm whereby you're you're uh, strengthening that quality of the heart that delights in somebody somebody else being more skilled than you are it's like wow he's he's a much better chanter or you know she's uh, she's really good at uh, uh, arranging the flowers or uh, really uh, attentive in the in the business meetings or uh, uh, these kind of genuine delighting in the the good qualities that other people have and that you don't feel that like you've got to be you've got to be the best or you've got to outshine other people so for myself one of the things that being in the role of a of a teacher uh, i wouldn't want to uh, to be always wiser than the people that i teach i i would i would really i would feel that i've succeeded as in the role of teaching if the people that i teach uh, end up being much wiser and more uh, and more liberated than i am I think that's a, that's a sign of a good teacher, <laughs> is that the the pupils uh, outshine the teacher, and that uh, that uh, I feel is um, say a, a, a skillful aspiration. If uh, when you're in the role of teaching, if you've always got to be smarter than everyone and ahead of everyone and be uh, outshining everyone, and that uh, and wanting your to have everyone sort of look up to you and be sort of impressed. Well, oh, I could never be like like him or like her. Um, I would say that you're steering things in an unskillful direction, and uh, that uh, that's in my not very humble opinion, <laughs> but I, I do feel it, it's it's helpful to have that that in mind, and that these kind of uh, as Umpo points out, these sort of envious or jealous. Uh, reactions can easily arise for us as, as part of our strong so instinctual conditioning our kind of tribal um conditioning you know that the where are you in the in the the, the pecking order you know are you the uh, you know, you're an alpha or a beta or a gamma or you you the delta male down at the, the bottom of the tribe you know bottom of the heap um so we we don't have to live our lives in that way we, we don't have to to judge each other or compete with each other in those ways or feel jealous of each other but rather 
to to find that place in the heart that says, oh, wow, she's so much better at that than I am. That's great. Excellent. And not just sort of excellent, you know, through, through, through clenched teeth. Like, I'm so happy that you're so good at that. You know, that <laughs> I'm really pleased for you. It's, no, not through clenched teeth, but really from the, from the heart. Like, wow, that person is so much better. It's like, I don't really have a very practical sense when it comes to material things. Um, I, I'm more of a words, sort of words and ideas kind of a person. And I don't really have a very good sense of three-dimensional space. I, I can't uh, imagine things in three-dimensional space very well. People like Ajahn Yanarato are, are extraordinarily skilled. Or, um, and I found living with uh, Ajahn Pasno in, in California, um, he, he was very, very practical and uh, and has got a very good sense of of, you know, of of construction and arranging things and so i would come from a sort of theoretical position or just sort of where you know what order we wrote things in <laughs> on, a, on a list and uh, oh let's let's do that first because it's what i thought of first and he would say well <clears throat> no that doesn't make sense we should do it we should do build this cootie first and then and then um uh, the, do that one and that one and that one in that, in that order because that's the the uh, the natural progression of putting the paths in on the hillside, or just recognizing that if you want to feed the water to the kuti, you put the water tank further up the hill so the water <laughs> the water can run downhill. Yeah, you know, think well, there's a nice nice flat spot we could put the water tank there. It's like Ajahn, water doesn't flow uphill. You need to pump. You know, use Mother Nature's pump. If you put the tank up above, make a little bench and then put the tank up there, then the water can just come down to the cootie. Oh, right, good idea. So uh, I, I, I really um, I did a lot of, a, of some mudita for Ajahn Pasno's and very skillful qualities. There was a, there was a lot of mudita practice of rejoicing in his, um, uh, his sort of attentiveness, his skill and, and uh, those particular qualities. And um, but I do feel that uh, the what Lumpur is saying here about about mudita is uh, is very helpful, um, particularly in terms of community life and how we look at each other, how we judge each other, and we can easily um, put uh, put people into boxes and sort of say, "Oh, she's like this, and he's he's like that," and and uh, it, that's not a very joyful. Uh, attitude, sort of a, a very joyful uh, way of operating, and so you know the fact is that some people are more sk skilled at certain things than others. Yeah, there there are natural uh, divisions or discriminations um, for sure, yeah, but um, we don't have to to fix that. We don't have to typecast each other or make rigid judgments, and um, this co uh, conscious appreciation of the good qualities of the people around us. Just the very fact that you're, you're, you're living with uh, someone, they, they might not be so good as you are at chanting or at uh, sewing robes or whatever, but the, the very fact that they are, they're a fellow monastic, they're a sahadamika, they're a fellow dhammafera, that is to be rejoiced. Sometimes we, f we can forget that because, oh, she can't sew a straight line, what an idiot. It's like, so? She's a nun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he, he uh, he's totally hopeless. Can't chant in tune. Yeah, but he's a monk. 
Yeah, 99% of what there is in the picture is the, the fact of being in robes and keeping the precepts. The, 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 the chanting is only 1% of the picture. But we can so easily just fix on the small details and, and judge each other with those, um, with those kind of narrow um, say, uh, areas of, of, of activity and community life and, and forget the bigger picture. So I see, and we've gone past seven o'clock, so I'll leave it there for today.